it doesn't really get much better than Sunday morning, hearing your voices, being in this room together, lifting high the name of Jesus and worshiping him. Kids, yes, kids. I'm, I get so caught up in it, it's, it's hard to remember. But kids, you are dismissed to Kids Church. If that is for you, you're going to have a great time there. See, see, let's see, we got Mindy back there and Chris back there to follow them to Kids Church. We'll take your Bible. Turn to the book of James. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to catch you after the service. It is great to see a few new faces as well. Uh, but last week, we introduced this book. We started, we're starting a new series. It's called Faith Does. This series is all about how you can live your faith out loud in a way that doesn't make people's ears hurt. All right? So we, we opened up with James last week. We um, we saw a lot about who he is as the author, the brother of Jesus. Um, and as you're turning there, I want you to consider something, because this is where we're going to be today. But everyone is fighting some type of silent inner battle that you don't fully understand. You've probably heard that quote some, somewhere along the lines before. But it's true. Every single one of us, no matter... No matter who you are in this room, you're dealing with something, you're struggling with something inside that the person next to you may not really fully understand, doesn't really comprehend, and they don't need to. But the truth of the matter is we all have things that we are struggling with. We all have silent battles that we're dealing with. This is going to be a challenging book to go through. Uh, James is just no slouch. There's going to definitely be moments where he stomps on our toes as we go through this, this book. But we talked a lot about last week on how a lot of people out there that aren't in the church, lost people who don't know Jesus Christ, they see a representation of Jesus that's like a low-fidelity sound quality. It, it actually has some static, some interference. It distracts from the message of hope and love that Jesus brings to this world. And as we began last week, we saw that's a huge problem for you to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have a profession of faith, and then to have these inconsistencies that don't reflect an accurate image of the original recording. Jesus is that. He is the one that we are to emulate. He's the one that we're supposed to show and broadcast with a high-fidelity sound. So James, throughout this whole series and this entire book, is going to show us all these different practical ways that we can produce the right sound, the sound that won't hurt people's ears, the sound that will draw people to Jesus where we can see his love. And of all the different avenues in life that that is going to encompass as this series goes along, the first one is in trials. It's in this area of trials. That's all of chapter one. And we saw last week that you can rejoice when you're facing dark times. Now, I know just saying that, if you weren't here with us last week, that's going to be like, wait, what? Take a step back. Rejoice in a trial, and if you and if you weren't in this message, you almost could be offended by that by that statement that we can rejoice in trials. But God uses these trials to refine us, to mature the good traits that He's already gifted you with. And adversity really is a breeding ground to develop more perseverance and strength. But at the same time, if that's where it ends, it just ends with, hey, you're gonna get stronger through trials. The logic there would break down pretty fast as well, because if, if that's it, what are you left with? Well, I took a beating, and now I'm going to be stronger 
and take another stronger, and take a better beating when I lose my job next time. And, and in life, we talked about how that would just be an abusive relationship if that's all it was. It's not just to make you stronger. There's more to it than that. Back in verse 3, James says to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is the next level stuff where he will use the pain to add character traits that you never had before. Not only will he mature you and develop what he's already gifted you with, but he will completely metamorphosize you and, and transform you into an entirely new person who reflects an accurate image of Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to finish chapter 1. So this is basically like part 2 of, of last week's sermon. But we're not going to pick it up exactly where we left off last week. We're going to back up just a little bit. We're going to ease back into the pool, walk down the steps, back up to verse 5. Because I realize it's just really hard to just jump into verses 8 through 19 without talking about the, the first few verses here. So look at verse 5 with me as we begin. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Verse 5 tells us where we start these battles, okay? They have to start on your knees in prayer. Um, we're going to be in a lot of situations in life where we lack the depth we need. We lack the confidence and the assurance to know what to do. And we have to run to the Lord in prayer. The direct truth there is to pray about it. Ask him. But there's a couple indirect truths that are also found in verse 5. God will give generously without reproach. So what does that mean? James understood this almost more than anyone. Uh, last week we emphasized this. He was the brother of Jesus who denied Jesus. He made fun of Jesus. He, he literally told people that they should run away from Jesus, that Jesus was crazy during the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. The brother of Jesus was an unbeliever. The only thing that transformed James and changed, changed him was when he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we talked about how when Jesus showed himself to James, how he would have just been like, it's okay. Your past is in the past. You don't need to deal with the shame of what you did before. It's over. I forgive it. And he's not going to look down on you and hold your past against you if you have repented of that and you have turned to Jesus Christ. If it's under the blood... It does not need to hold you back anymore. And this is a very freeing, transforming truth. Uh, even if you're feeling under the fire right now, even if you did something yesterday, if you know Jesus Christ, he has already forgiven it. And he's not defining you by that. He chooses to throw it in the depths of the bottomless sea to separate it as far as the east is from the west. And that doesn't identify you. That doesn't define you anymore. The second indirect truth from verse 5 is that we are going to be in situations where we need help to get through it, all right? Life is full of these moments where you find yourself lacking wisdom. How do I navigate this new job that has all these pressures and stresses on me? I don't know how to do this. How do I raise a kid that will love Jesus Christ when I have all these problems myself? How do I navigate this situation where someone who I love has hurt me? Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you've made a mistake. And, and maybe you're missing someone you love. There's a lot of inner turmoil things that we battle with, that we wrestle with. And this text, the rest of these verses, 
is going to give us a threefold answer on how we can just stop rolling with the punches and how we can actually go on the offensive and duke it out and get victory through these trials through Jesus Christ. So here's the first, first point. Found in verse 6, but it's leave your doubt in the dust. Leave your doubt in the dust. So verse 6, I'm going to read 7 and 8 as well. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So at this point, you need to have two prayers, right? The first prayer needs to be, Lord, uh, give me wisdom. You see that there. And the second prayer that really is found in verses 6 through 8 is, Lord, not only do I need wisdom, because a lot of times, I mean, who doesn't pray for wisdom? We have no problem praying for wisdom. We all do that. I pray for wisdom, but too often I will stop right there and I'll just pray for wisdom. But there's more to this prayer, right? It's pray for wisdom and secondly, Lord, give me faith. Give me faith and kill my doubts. I, to move forward, I can't, be on, I can't be wavering, going back and forth. I need you to give me a bold faith that I don't have before. Now, we do need an important clarification at this point because this isn't saying that you will never have doubts, ever. That's, that's not what it's saying. Uh, wrestling through doubts is part of the growth process. Um, too many Christians get this wrong idea that if you're struggling and wavering and going back and forth, that you're finished. And I mean, I've been there before talking with Christians about this passage, and they're just like, well, verses 6 through 8, I can never do that. This, this one isn't for me. This, this promise, I'm not going to be able to achieve this and to earn this one because I waver, I doubt, I go back and forth. Ask in faith without doubting, I've never done that. But that's not what James is specifically saying. He's not, not expecting you to never struggle in the fire. That's assumed that you will. As he goes on, he makes it very clear, this isn't about just battling doubt. He's going directly after the core heart issue here. The word double-minded literally means a two-souled person. And every scholar will agree that this word, this double-mindedness, was never even found in Greek literature up until this point. So you got to hand it to James to describe an in-depth, deep concept by just creating a new word. All right? Because that's, that's what he did here. He just made up a word to describe this. But it's, it's this, this idea that I say I believe something, but functionally I do something totally different. All right? That's where the wavering and the doubting that, that James is really driving home at. He's attacking that. You can't say that um, I believe God and I trust God and God is my provider. God can do anything. And then at the same time, just take matters into your own hands and try to solve your own problems and get stressed out when it's not working. This isn't saying that you're not going to struggle and have to fight through doubt. That would contradict the rest of scripture. What this is saying is don't functionally live a life of duplicity. Don't say you believe one thing and then actually do another. We see this in, a great, great example of this is in Mark 9, where Jesus is in his earthly ministry, and there's a man that runs up to Jesus. He has a little boy 
who had an unclean spirit for, for years. And, and this man runs up to Jesus and he says, have mercy on us, help us. Would you please do something for us? Jesus said to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. This is Mark 9, 20 through 25. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what he said to Jesus. Jesus' answer was, when Jesus saw that the, cro the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus healed that boy because that man, his father, cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's the spirit that we all need in trials. You don't have to be the perfect rock that never moves, Okay. That's not you, that's not me, that's none of us. Who's the rock that never moves? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can be that for us. So this is not about perfection, this is about progress. And, and really so much of this series is going to be that. So much of James follows that exact same theme. But with all of that said, at the exact same time, you can't shortchange what this is actually telling us. The point here is to trust God, have faith in him, that he is who he says he is, and that you are who he says you are. You have to believe there is purpose in the pain. Plead with God to increase your faith, to kill your doubts. You're not going to receive this promise until you're there at that point. So we have to get on our knees and start praying some bold prayers that aren't common in the church today. We need to start believing God at face value for what he says in his word. You know, a lot, just on a lighter side, I mean, we can see all the time people who are like, hey, I'm on a Whole30 diet, I'm on this keto diet, and, you know, they start out great. They start out Monday, they're following their diet to a T, and then Tuesday rolls around. They go through lunch, it's fine, but it's Tuesday night, and it's Taco Tuesday, and like, all right, I'll splurge, and I'll have a taco, and then Wednesday's fine. They're back on their diet Wednesday, but then Thursday comes around, and if you know any of our life groups... It's like, oh, my word, here's a chocolate chip cookie in front of me, or this person's amazing chip dip, and they splurge again on their diet. Friday, they're fine, but then Saturday, you go golfing, and the clubhouse only has, like, barbecue and burgers and fries and hot dogs, and there you go. Do you see what I'm talking about? The people who say they're on this diet, but, like, are they really on the diet? I don't know. This is, the, this is just an example of what it can be like when we say we believe one thing, but we're unstable, we're wavering, and we're not really putting it into practice. When you say you love Jesus and you're following him with your life, don't turn around in the double-minded way and try to fix all your problems yourself. Get on your knees, ask for faith, ask for wisdom, get bold about saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief. On Sundays, you can't just present your spiritual side when it's convenient. Be like, all right, this is who I am. This is what I believe. And then play that card then, but in actuality, go your own way. We're all going to wrestle with doubt from time to time, but this isn't something that we need to endlessly spar with. And this is my last point about this doubt part, because I think there's a whole group of Christians who could almost make their sub-identity like I'm wrestling with doubt. That's not what we see in Scripture. We are going to wrestle with it from time to time, but it's not something you should endlessly spar with. What happens if you endlessly spar with that? Well, 
I mean, I don't know. Some of you have probably seen this last few weeks. Like lately, my son Beckham, he's seven years old. The kid weighs at least 60 pounds right now. I don't really know for sure. But he loves to box me, okay? And we're like all around the house. Like it, I, it just comes out of nowhere. He's coming in, ah, boom, giving me a shot in the stomach or the ribs. And like I'll, I'll wrestle with him a little bit. We'll box a little bit. But I can't do that forever. I was actually feeling really sore last night. I'm like, why am I so sore? It's like, oh, yeah, my son punched me in the gut like six times. Like, you can't spar forever. It's going to wear you down. It's going to injure you, right? That's what doubt will do to you. If you're constantly, endlessly doubting, it's eventually going to put you in a place where you're handicapped, where you're sore, where you're not able to move forward and to serve Jesus like you're supposed to. Because that's another thing. Like, when people get in this doubt train, they don't, they don't think forward thinking. They don't think that I'm a victor through Jesus Christ. And they don't do bold things and ask for faith to move mountains. We have to do that. And it all comes when we leave our doubt in the dust. The point of trials isn't to struggle endlessly. The point is to let them have their full effect so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Leave your doubt in the dust by fighting doubt with faith. That's what we see the first way that you duke it out through the trials. Here's the second way we fight these battles. Number two, loosen your grip on materialism. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. There's a lot to unpack here in verses 9 through 15. But let's start with this. Uh, comparison. It's a problem. And for about a decade now, ever since we've really like had social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever else the kids are doing these days, like all these studies have shown that if you go too deep into that, if you take a steady diet of that, it messes with your psyche. Um, these things going unchecked will create this nasty comparison game, which will lead eventually to depression. And this is definitely connected to the veneer nonsense of, of double-mindedness that we saw, we just saw, but there's also a nuanced difference here. We should know by now that no one's life is as good as social media makes it out to be, 99% of the time. Uh, I know it's, it's hard to, to really process that because you're looking at these pictures and all oh, these person's kids are so cute and wow, they have endless money. They're always going on these amazing vacations and uh, this person has a new outfit for every day of life, and they never wear the same clothes twice. Like, you see that, and, it's, and, it, and it messes with you. But we know the real world is a lot more grimy and gritty than the way it appears. When, and here's the interesting thing, though. When we're in the middle of a trial, we become hypersensitive 
to the prettiness of everybody else's life. And we can become jealous, and we can become covetous of what they have, and we can begin to resent where God has us. And we're not even thinking about the fact that maybe God is sharpening us. Maybe God is adding something new to our faith that we don't even have yet. He's conforming to me to be more like Jesus Christ. But that's not on our radar because we're just looking at the seemingly beautiful life that this other person is having. So just after you get done duking it out with doubt, now you have to start duking it out with comparison. This is the next part of the trial that James is bringing into the equation. And it almost seems like he's just throwing money in here. Is he, is he changing the topic? Well, no, he's, he's not. This is definitely, it definitely relates. It definitely connects. The truth is, the material things that you have or that anyone else has can fade away very, very fast. James describes this by using this illustration from nature. We can't elevate these things to a place that they don't belong because whatever you do, uh, if you're comparing your situation with someone else's situation, you have no idea what they're really going through, and it can fade away like the flower of the grass. And I mean, think about, think about the way James uses this illustration because, I mean, we're stepping into fall. Who loves fall? Who's ready for fall? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little bit later too. Like, we love that. But fall, I mean, the leaves change. They turn these new colors. It looks pretty, like the weather's slowly changing. You've got the football being tossed around. Uh, where, when I grew up, people would burn their leaves. So you had this really nice, nice smell in the air. I just loved it. I mean, all of those things about fall I love. Like, but dead grass is not one of those things we love. It doesn't transform slowly and morph into something pretty and then gracefully die out. No. If your grass dies, it just turns brown one day and it's just done and it's ugly, and it's dead. That's what James is describing, the way things will just, the material things of this world will just disappear. All right? Don't put too much stock in the materialistic stuff that you're going after. It's, it's green one day, and it's brown and dead the next. That's why you need to loosen your grip on your money. That's not going to bring you joy and contentment. It never has for anyone. And it never will. And it definitely won't work for you because it hasn't worked for anyone else. When you're tempted to look at other people's riches and depress yourself with comparison, remember verse 11 right here in the text. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But money isn't the only thing that fades. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 and 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Beauty fades on this earth. Your mind, your, your intellect, your sharpness, that will fade one day on this earth. Uh, now, I know this isn't the brightest thought. I don't want you to get depressed as we're talking about depression here. So I think this would be time for like an encouraging point, right? And actually, if you look at verse 12, it's exactly what James gives us. All right, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And, I mean, you know, this proves James is still talking about trials, okay? I wasn't just making that part up. He's still talking about how money, don't make that the be-all, end-all. Um, it will be often be a point of contention in your trials. But here's the perspective of truth that you need to lift up your head on this. When you make it through a trial, 
God will reward you with a crown. It's called the crown of life. We don't talk enough about the rewards in heaven that we can earn here on earth. We just don't. But there's a whole list of crowns that you can earn. There's the crown of life right here. There's the incorruptible crown. There's the crown of righteousness. There's a crown of glory. There's a crown of rejoicing. Specifically, the crown of life, it's mentioned here in James. It's also mentioned in Revelation 2.10, where it's bestowed on those who persevere under trials. Jesus references it when he's talking to the church at Smyrna. And he says, not to be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even, even if it takes you to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So right here, it's given to every one of us who remain steadfast and we continue our love for God even in the midst of a trial. There's a crown for that. And Revelation also teaches us that one day when we receive these crowns, we will cast them back at the feet of Jesus because we realize we wouldn't have any of them if it wasn't for him. But I love the fact that we can earn these crowns. You've heard of the school of hard knocks. The harder the trial is that you're going through, the more trials that you go through, the more opportunity you have to earn the crowns of life that you can give back to Jesus, that he will reward you with. And I mean, we may as well take this minute to stop and talk about generosity. Because Jesus talks a whole lot about wealth, a whole lot about our money. He asks us to be generous, to give back a portion of what he has blessed us with. And I really believe that just a 10% tithe is the baseline of what we should be doing with what God has blessed us with. You know, you'll hear this line of reasoning sometimes that, uh, you know, the tithe, 10%, was this concept we get from the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to a New Testament believer. And sure, okay, I understand. That's di it's different. The question is really, should a Christian still tithe? I love how Randy Alcorn answers this question. And he has this little book called The Treasure Principle. It's like a 100-page book. It's a great read. I don't have it personally. I, my dad does. Uh, I, I highly recommend you picking it up. But this is what he says. Every New Testament example of giving goes far beyond the tithe. However, none falls short of it. Whether or not the tithe is still the biblical measure of giving, we must ask ourselves, does God expect New Covenant children to give less or more? Jesus always raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. Surely God doesn't expect less of us who have the Holy Spirit in our hearts in the wealthiest society in human history than he demanded of the poorest Israelites. Tithing isn't the ceiling of our giving. It's the floor. And you remember what else Jesus said to his disciples after he talked with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100-fold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. Jesus is saying, look, what you do with your resources, it, it may be money, it may be your gifts, it may be your talents. Whatever God has given you, when you give back generously to other people, he will restore you 100-fold. That's why people say you can't outgive God. You can't do it. We have to be generous. If you're giving 10% of the church, I hope you're giving more to missionaries like Brother Aslam, 
who we're going to be hearing from in September when we have a missions conference over in Pakistan and we, that some of our elders get to teach those pastors. Some of you give above and beyond your tithe to him. Some of you give above and beyond your tithe to organizations like Child Freedom Coalition, which our church is actively involved with. That's wonderful. I love it when I see people in our church give generously. We had somebody in our church just this week gave Julie and I a really extravagant, super nice gift card because it was our anniversary. They didn't have to do that. They gave above and beyond. Those kind of things go a long way. They bless people. And, and, and you feel rewarded. You feel enriched and fulfilled when you aren't stingy with your money and you're generous with your money. I mean, there's going to come a day where we as a church probably have to buy a building, right, or buy land. It's going to require people who give above and beyond their tithe to do something extra special and grand for God's kingdom to go forward. We're called to that. Don't miss out on all those incredible blessings. God will give you more when you prove that you can be entrusted with what he's already given you. If you're like, I'm, I'm scrounging around, scraping for every dime that I can find, I mean, are you being generous at all? Because if you're being generous, God knows he can entrust you with more and he will give you more. That's the way he operates. So here's the take home for us. In the midst of our trials, getting back to James, don't worry about what you don't have. Don't worry about what other people have, the neighbors down the street. Loosen your grip on materialism and fight comparison with generosity. And I would have to say, like, my wife Julie has really helped me in this area. I still have a long way to go. Like, she is way more generous than me. And I, I've seen it. I've seen what God can do through generosity just by learning it from my wife. I love that about my wife. A shining example of someone who got this, that you can fight comparison, you can fight materialism by just being generous, was an old missionary named C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd's name really rings true and describes who this guy was because in the 18th century, he was the be-all, end-all, one of the most popular people in all of England. He was a young, rich, professional cricket player, all right? And I know don't we, we think, well, an NBA player. Like, that's basically the correlation. He was a cricket player, and he got saved. He trusted Jesus Christ when he heard D.L. Moody preach in a campaign, and this guy came from a wealthy family. He had it all. He set it all aside, and he said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to the mission field of China to preach the good news of what Jesus has done for me. And he wrote a poem that is still convicting to this day. You may have heard of one of the lines in this poem. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the mentality, that's the mindset that we all have to grow into. We're not going to grow into that unless we're going through some adversity and we're in some trials and we actually take this step of faith and we become generous and we see God bless and we see what he does. He will grow and develop that area and he'll, he'll turn us into a stingy person, into a generous person. That's what trials can do for you. Back to the text though, James ends this point by saying, God isn't the one who's tempting you, okay? Don't blame God for these temptations. Don't blame God for your problems, right? Like, look, at, look again at verse uh, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He goes on to describe the result of the fall is that you will be enticed by your own sinful desires. That's all of us. All, I mean, 
We're talking about things that we need to constantly be reminded of. Remember, James is always going to be stomping on our toes and bringing up, hey, you need to hear this again. You need to hear this again. Here's the end game. If you follow your desires, your fleshly desires will lead to sin, and sin will lead to death. We don't want to go down that road. And I mean, we could preach an entire message on these verses right here, but James is really bringing the dead grass illustration full circle. In case you didn't understand it the first time, we can spell it out here. Don't live for materialism. Comparison is not going to help you in the midst of your struggle. The end result of all the wealth, all the clothes, all the toys, all the parties, if Christ isn't in it, the end result is sin, which will lead to death. So fight doubt with faith and fight comparison with generosity. And the last way we fight through our battles is found in verses 16 through 18. And in classic James fashion, uh, this last point carries the most punch, all right? The last thing he mentions here I think is the most important because you're not even going to be able to do the first two unless you do this one. This one is where you look vertically and you turn your eyes up to the character of God. That's what motivates us and inspires us to fight and duke it out the way we've already seen. So point number three, lift your gaze to the giver. Lift your gaze to the giver. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's really three subpoints I want to I want you to see here in 16 through 18. The first is don't be deceived into forgetting that everything you have is a gift from God. Do you see that in the text? Every gift comes down from the Father of lights. This is, this is how you stop rolling with the punches and you start getting on the offensive. I mean, it has to start with prayer, right? And then it slowly morphs into the offensive when you start becoming generous and you start, you know, forsaking that comparison game and moving forward to serving Jesus and doing things for other people. But it really picks it up to another level when you start witnessing God give back more and more and you stop living the old, unstable, double-minded ways and you see God give back. And you realize that he's the one who gives you everything you have. And when you experience that, in this experiential way that, wow, God provided for my need. Wow, I gave something. God just blessed me. He, he just filled that right back where I was missing what I needed. And then you'll begin to love him more because you see how much he loves you, how much he provides for you. The first truth about God from verses 16 and 17 is that he is the giver of every good gift. Verse 17 says something else about the character of God. And look again with me. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is another truth about God. Don't be deceived into forgetting that God never changes. All right? Jobs change. The economy changes. Families change. We change. 
Change is happening all the time. There's a lot of ups and downs in life. There's peaks and there are valleys. I mean, fall is, is a season of change. Hooray for fall. We love that. But not all change is as great as, as pumpkin spice lattes, right? Some change is difficult in the midst of that. This is a good truth to hold on to. God never changes. He is 100% consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never has a bad day. We all have bad days. We all will say things that we wish we never said. We will hurt people. People will hurt us. The only person who will never do that, will never leave you or forsake you, is Jesus Christ, our God and Father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit, they will always be there for us. When you're disappointed in yourself, when you're going through a trial and people are failing you, one of the most amazing truths that you can hold on to is God is faithful. God is steadfast. He is patient. He will never, ever change. He's always there to love me. And we can thank him for that. Then look at the next verse with me, verse 18. This is the last verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Third sub point on this one is don't be deceived into forgetting that God saved you for a reason. Don't ever forget that. He tells us, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's talking to Christians. He wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't a temptation and a very real threat for us to forget. But he has saved you. He knows you. He has a plan for you. He has a specific purpose for your life. So let's break this verse down. Of his own will, all right? So it's God's desire, his personal desire to do what? To bring us forth. Just like sin gives birth to death, God will give birth to us. How is he going to do that? How is he going to make us new, push us forward, and strengthen us and transform us? The next phrase in the verse. By the word of truth. What's that? It's a very common phrase in the New Testament. It's another name uh, that we just have for the gospel. The word of truth. We have to confess our sin and believe. And who are we to believe in? Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves us. The word of truth is looking and believing. It's turning from our old way, confessing our sin, and turning to Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the encapsulation of the gospel. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. A few verses later in John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. When you are in a trial and you're duking it out with doubt, you're duking it out with comparison, the only way to really stop rolling with the punches and to get ahead of this is to lift your gaze to the giver of the good gifts. Every good gift. And what is his ultimate gift? His ultimate gift is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who took your sin and shame upon himself. He sacrificed himself substitutionally. He took your sin upon himself and he paid the price that we deserved paying. 
that we could have never paid on our own. Jesus took that for us so that you can be a first fruit of his creation. This is good news right here. God chose you. He died for you. He has a plan for you. There's purpose in the pain. And that's for you to become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For you to glow in the dark, to reflect the glory of God with high fidelity. That's this entire sermon. Worship team, you can come back up on this point. To wrap this up, I just want to say, there's different types of trials that we all face. And if and if you want to get creative, I like doing this sometimes. Some trials are like a protein shake, all right? They, they strengthen you. They shape you. Your muscles are getting torn down. They help you grow back faster and stronger. But it's not just so you can look better in the mirror. This isn't just a glamour muscle protein shake enhancer. It's to develop your core, right? It's, it's, to, it's to develop you into being a more steadfast person. Other trials... They're like splinter removal trials, all right? Uh, I, I, I would say both of my boys, don't tell them I said this, but they're terrified of unfinished wood because Beckham has gotten a couple splinters from unfinished wood. If we're on a deck or we're on a picnic table and it's unfinished wood, they're a little nervous, all right? But what, I mean, and I mean, thankful, I'm, I'm so thankful for Julie. Like, I, I mean, when the screaming bloody murder's going on, it's like, it's like, what's happening over here? My son has a splinter. I can't do it. I can't help. I'm completely helpless. Julie can get those, those little tweezers and just, like, work it out. I don't know how she does it, but thankfully she does. If you don't get that splinter out, it will get infected. It will get way worse. There's times that we're enticed, we're tempted by our own desires, and God has to remove something before that infection gets into your bloodstream, right? Do you see that? Think of some of the trials as he's removing you out of a place that you don't need to be. Maybe it's a job you don't need to be in. Maybe it's a position of comfort and ease that you're in right now. Maybe you're so focused on all these other things, you're not even thinking about what you can do for Jesus Christ. And he's gonna get you out of that place. And he's gonna put you in a place where you're desperate in desperate need of him. But splinter removal trials are going to be painful depending on where that splinter is at. Is it in your, where is it at? Is it in a place deep down in your heart that it doesn't need to be? The splinters are there on the bottom of the foot. Those are painful. But if God has to remove you from one of those, it's because he loves you and he has a better plan for you. And then lastly, you have butterfly, butterfly trials. And we talked about this last week too. But these are the ones where God doesn't just develop and refine you. These are the ones that have to do with complete transformation, right? I mean, he wants to take you from being that caterpillar who's, who's in the cocoon to break out of that, to metamorphosize you into someone who is completely new, nothing like your old self. And this won't happen unless you shed some of that old baggage and you reemerge you stop rolling with the punches. You start duking it out the three specific ways that James just showed us. So where are you at right now with all of this? Are you going through one of these? Are, these, are there one of these particular areas? Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's comparison. Maybe it's just where you're looking. Maybe you're not praying like you should about it. But where do you need to make a change? I hope you're not ignoring 
the stuff that's going on and, and just kind of burying it and repressing it and denying it. Every single one of us is dealing with a silent battle inside that other people may not know about. God is doing something in you. Leave your doubt in the dust by fighting duplicity with faith. Loosen your grip on materialism by fighting comparison with generosity. Lift your gaze to the giver by fighting deception with truth. The truth of who God is. His son, Jesus Christ, that he has given us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's who we have to look to and cling to to have any chance of making it through these battles. Would you stand up? We're going to sing a couple songs in response. We're going to apply the truth that we just heard. And we're going to praise God and sing it directly back to him. So please sing that with me.